This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to another edition of The Minefield where we try to do some things uh, among them, negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Sometimes we just unpack problems and leave them there in a state of unpackedness, thereby becoming unwieldy and insoluble. Other times we pretend to solve them, uh, but that never really happens. Well, Lee Daly's my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. How did you like that summary, Scott? I like that very, very much. And in fact, I mean, my only slight correction, if I may, I think yes. unpackedness is probably better. I love so the word. So pronunciation, not... I just made up the word on the fly. I didn't no, think no, about no. it. It's a good one, and it's one that we should use more often. So, Waleed, is this one of those problems that we've left in a perpetual state of unpackedness? Okay, we, yeah. Is this a new entry for the Minefield Absolutely. Bingo card? Okay. I love it. No, no it, we have, still haven't produced that card, by the way. I feel like we've been promising since about the second year. We've had some pretty valiant efforts on the part of devoted listeners. Some of them have been good. Some of them have been interesting. Some of them have been a little bit funny. Others were slightly, how can I put this? Insulting? Insulting in the sense that it's made me hyper-conscious uh, of certain things that maybe are rhetorical ticks or... Can you share with me that no, content? Why? No. Well, um, that, yes. This is what the people all want. Fair, all fair, I can share it with you. No, come on, say it now. No. Uh, Give the me other, one, just one. Uh, it can be one of mine. No, no. It's all right. Scott's unbreakable. Yes, I am in this particular instance. I should, by the way, speaking of unbreakable, I should mm. apologize to our listeners. I'm still nursing a little bit of a... I, I don't get sick very much, Willie. So when I do get sick, it tends to hang around a little. So if I sound like I've got my head in a bucket, then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best to resist and escape. But, you know, here we are anyway. Okay, good. Right, so are you, are you going to do the topic or am I? No, no, no. no. Well, your, the tradition is that you do it and then I just sort of riff, see what I think of it. <laughs> Look, I, um, this is a really interesting one for me because there are three things that you and I care a lot about and that we've talked about off air. And it's surprising to me how rarely we've brought these three topics onto air. I mean, we have, we have, but given the disproportionate amount of space they take up maybe in our our emotional circuitry and in our thinking. I'm kind of surprised that we haven't done more of it. Maybe it's discretion. Maybe it's because we don't want to be too indulgent. I think we both think a lot about childhood, uh, our own and those of our children, and maybe what's happening to childhood. We both think and care a great deal about education. Uh, you have wonderful things to say about yours. I have mm. not too many good things to say about mine. That may be something that we get into. And we both care and think a lot about class. To date, we've done one show on class. We've talked about... Think? I think we've done more than that. No, we've talked about class. Okay, You're, you may well be surprised by this. So mm. we did a show in 2021 with the great American journalist, writer, George Packer, on the invisibility of class in culture and the ways in which class is portrayed or not portrayed and our relative silence when it comes to class. Specifically um, postmodern culture yeah. and more recent. Because well, we had the discussion then. I don't need to have it now. Go we on. Did. Although we may well have it again this particular <laughs> yeah. episode. We'll just have to see. The other one, it's going to be so interesting if you remember this. We did a show with Judith Brett after yeah. the Bronwyn Bishop helicopter incident. Oh, my God. I don't yep. remember this at all. And we talked about Australian politics, our resistance to aristocracy, and whether there is any place for a political or cultural elite in Australian political culture. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Okay. Well, if you remember that, then I'm not going to challenge you on <laughs> anything to do with what we've done in the past. Um, but these are... Th am I right in saying that these are... I don't know, central concerns, but they're certainly concerns of both of us. Well, so you know what's interesting? I think if I lived, this is just speaking purely for myself, you yep. might have a very different view, but I think if I lived in an era that was dominated by class politics, I would resist it. Interesting. I would say it's overdetermined. Hmm. Living in this era, I say we pay insufficient attention to it. So that means one of two things, either that there is a balance to be struck on these things and we seem to swing like a pendulum but not strike that balance or that I am simply pathologically contrarian. 
Well, or both. Or both. I, I was about to say yes to all the above. <laughs> it is interesting, though, Walid. I, I think, I mean, what you point out is right. I, I mean, you do have that disposition. It's one of the things I love about you. Um, but I do think there's also something about class that we just haven't gotten quite right. I mean, something that Marxism could never, ever do, it seems to me, was to really get its arms fully around the aesthetics of class. It remained confined to uh, class agency, to class consciousness, and certainly to the politics of class. Class is a new basis of, around which we can sort of organize change, realize something else. In other words, you could say that the aesthetic dimension of class that Marxism is, tends to be interested in is the utopian aesthetics of class, not so much the current aesthetics of class. Is that fair? Yeah. I, the way I would phrase it, and I don't know if this is what you mean, mm. is that Marxism belongs to a purely materialistic form of politics. Yeah, that's right. And as such, aesthetic concerns probably are harder to assimilate into it. There, right. there would be Marxists, I think, who would do it. Yes. But it doesn't happen easily. Theodore Adorno tried and I think failed. I'm not an Adorno fan. And I know there are people who, are, who love him who are going to hate me for saying that. But I, I think his failures to grapple with a properly Marxist aesthetics, it's one of the most interesting failures because it's one of those failures that fails not because of the contingency. In other words, he just didn't, he couldn't come up with one, but he failed because of a kind of internal impossibility. But that's, that's another conversation for another day. Well, and yet, as I think about this, yep. as you've just said, it's a conversation for another day. Um, <laughs> it depends a bit on what you mean by aesthetics, because the other thing that is really noticeable about the Soviet bloc or the communist bloc is their emphasis on aesthetics. Yeah, it's true. I mean, developed and authorised particular artistic styles that showed up in sculpture and painting, for example. But again, well, they they, these were utopian. In mind. Yeah, but these were yeah. utopian. And, and that, that's the point. The sense of class is, the aesthetics of class is the taking of the thing that belongs to the future and accelerating it, realising it into the moment. And then the problem, of course, with Marxist aesthetics is the temptation to then shape the people into to that it, yeah. image. Yes. In, in other words, it becomes not an aesthetics of the present, but an aesthetics of the future. Yeah, but I feel like that is true for most aesthetics, actually. Oh, <laughs> I mean, well, think about... This is... Why oh are we doing a God. show on aesthetics? I know, I this is wonderful. Because oh, don't you my. think... I mean, you could mount, and no doubt a, a Marxist somewhere might do this, an argument about capitalist aesthetics that do exactly the same yeah. thing, just yeah, around true. things such as aspiration or whatever, and true. the end result of that becomes, I don't know, body shaming or that sort of image consciousness and all the, the damage that's attendant. Yes. That. I mean, I feel like that's an essay that could write itself. Oh, I'm, oh my God. Let's not talk about aesthetics anymore. Well, <laughs> no, no. I need to make two. <laughs> no, 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 no. Of course yeah. we can. Of, of course we can, because I think one of the ways that we can talk about it a little bit further brings us to the topic at hand. I should okay. say, incidentally, that this is why Aristotle's aesthetics, Aristotle's sense of the limits of aesthetics and the difference between aesthetics and politics is so instructive. And I think this is also the difference between a democratic politics as such versus something like a totalitarian or tyrannical or tyrannically utopian politics. For Aristotle, a particular form of human action takes effectively raw material and makes it without constraint into the image that is in the mind of the sculptor. Uh, there is no agency on the part of the material. There's no resistance on the part of the material. And that material is, as he puts it kind of famously, in his politics, the sculptor enters into no deliberation with the material. You could say that there are certain forms of material that offer particular types of resistance so that the author, the sculptor, can't simply exert her will upon it. Um, you could say that, you know, working with or against the grain of wood or working with or against the technical limitations in certain instruments, you could say that that is a form of creative limitation that is necessary for the act of creation itself. But what's so interesting to me is that... Which, which would also be true of sculpture. It would to some extent, but the idea is you don't have to, un unless you're just typing something in, to reference a show that we've done recently, unless you're simply mm -hmm. typing something into an AI program, you're not going to simply spit out what was in your mind or the mind of the machine. 
So, so obviously any material is going to you know, offer up some form of resistance. But I think what's interesting is that for Aristotle, what politics is, it is a radical wrestling with the given, not with the ideal. So politics can never be a simple imposition of the will of the tyrant or the despot. Uh, deliberation is the opposite of despotism because it never imposes an ideal. Here we could say a utopian vision of class or of politics or a utopian aesthetics onto the people as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think here the the aesthetics that are appropriate to say a democratic sensibility are interesting and interestingly different, I think, from a kind of Marxist or communist. Okay, that's just one little footnote. Uh, I just couldn't resist I mean, it's an 11-minute footnote. It's an 11-minute footnote. But here's what I mean by a class aesthetics. Um, I've been taken over the last four or five months with reading Elizabeth Strout, who's a wonderful modern novelist, uh, fiction writer. She has this Lucy Barton quartet, or it's called the Amgash series, um, surrounding a, a young woman named Lucy Barton who grew up in suffocating poverty in a place in Indiana, or Illinois, I, I beg your pardon. And uh, the, the books are very much about class, and it's about her ascent out of the isolation of a cruel and unusually kind of scarred family um, to become a writer herself. And one of the things that Barton reflects upon again and again as she's going through the halls of education, as she's ascending out of the class into which she was born and into other circles is she says, there's something uh, about what I lived with and grew up with that you never quite leave, that you never quite shake, that hangs on, that attends to who you are. And you live with a constant fear that you'll be found out by the people around you. And the way that she refers to this taint of the way that she, she grew up, is she says, it's like a smell. She says, I smell it on myself all the time, and I live in terror that other people are going to smell it on me. And what that leads to for her is a kind of perpetual self-questioning, a perpetual self-consciousness, and in some ways, an inability, an incapacity to fully give herself over into whatever new environment she finds herself. I mean, there are things about that portrayal of class and the way that class hangs on, the way that the aesthetics of class as something that lingers, as a fear that other people are always, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter the accomplishments that you've gained, that other people will always see you, if not fully with contempt, then there's always contempt around the edges of their eyes. They can always see that there's something about you that isn't quite right, that isn't quite quote-unquote normal, where you don't quite belong in the settings that you now find mm. yourself. And I think... Whether or not that's true. Whether or not it's true. That's exactly mm. right. And so I think this is one of the... I mean, one of the things I think we have to talk about in the topic that we're doing is the way in which the... Let's, let's put it this way. The way in which the accidents of birth, the contingencies of the circumstances into which one is born and... Uh, of the family in which one is raised. Or you could even say the particular social or even national circumstances in which you find yourself. Much less the time in which you're born. In a time of war, for instance, versus peace. In a time of of stagflation versus prosperity. Uh, There's something about the contingencies of our birth and the accidents of the circumstances into which we were born that often sort us into into ranks that assign us certain statuses that place us behind others that circumscribe our horizons that circumscribe our horizons and whatever one does and whatever political unless there is a degree of political intentionality those are the things that can very easily stick with one through one's life and without getting all pathetic about it, I mean, I think I've mentioned on the show before, I never went to school, Willie. I grew up in, a, in an extremely isolationist home uh, within a family for whom uh, outside relationships, certainly significant outside relationships, were regarded with a high degree of suspicion and for whom 
forms of or sources of authority outside the family were deliberately circumscribed. First setting foot into a classroom was a revelation for me. Um, that was my first experience, if I can put it this way, of democracy, of a kind of equality of learning, of uncircumscribed horizons. And yet I'll, I'll say there's something about that experience, the, the experience of non-schooling, if I can put it that way, that lingers. It just stays. And it's made me feel like, uh, again, I don't mean to be too pathetic, but it's made me feel like a fraud ever since, whatever else I've done. I just feel like I didn't belong here. I wasn't supposed to end up here. Um, and so what I think that, you know, this is why I think the aesthetics of class is important. If we think about what education does as not simply ascribing or assigning or enabling certain forms of opportunity over the course of one's life, despite one's birth, but as also ad addressing that aesthetic dimension that we're talking about overcoming something like the aesthetics that attend to one's self-consciousness from the very earliest ages as a result of the accidents of one's birth, then I think that provides an ethical basis for the way that we think about education, the way we think about education funding, but also how early education, high-quality education ought to kick in in the life of a child. I think that's probably the best way that I can set up uh, the topic for today. Right, which is about childcare or early childhood education. Yeah. It's only taken us 20 minutes to get there. <laughs> I think the journey was a nice one, though. I like yeah, that. Yeah, I enjoyed the journey. Um, and I, I use those two terms because I've noticed this as actually the undeclared battleground in the discussion. Have yeah. you noticed this? Yes, I have. So You mean the terminology? Yeah, yeah that's right. I, not, I noticed this in a fairly passive way. It's not like I was out there trying to spot it. It was just, just oh, hang on, mm. this just keeps happening. We're advocates for whatever you want to say, greater government funding, higher pay for workers in the sector, whatever. Put them, you know, on the, the pro-childcare side, they will always use the phrase early childhood education. That's right. And pretty much everyone else uses childcare. Because childcare begins to sound discretionary, doesn't it? You want to return to work? Yeah. It's, the, a, it's a formal way of saying babysitting. Yes, that's right. Um, can I confess something? Mm. The use of early childhood education as a synonym for childcare makes me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Because I think it is too unspecific. What does it mean? At what point does early childhood education as distinct from childcare kick in? Mm -hmm. Are we being asked to believe that early childhood education is synonymous with childcare, such that when I take my six-month-old to the childcare centre, I'm in fact inducting them into the education, the education system? system? Mm -hmm. Is that what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. Because although I've never put that question to any of these advocates because it would seem a weird aside to go down in the course of an interview about concrete policy often, I, I've never heard anyone tease out this distinction hmm. or, or even acknowledge if there is one. I suspect there would be advocates who would say, yes, it's the same. And I would want to resist that notion because I don't... I mean, I don't know. I'm wary of straying into an area that I, wow. I don't have expertise in. Mm -hmm. But everything I've gleaned from people who are experts is they're not the same thing. Mm. Can that I? There is a thing that happens early on in life. What is it, the first thousand days or something? Yeah, that's right. Where really it's about attachment, usually to a parental figure. And that's not early childhood education. Or if it is, it's not education as we think of the term applying in a way that would connect it to the education system. Sure. If what you're asking is, should we be thinking of early childhood education as something that evens out the, um, I don't know, the inequalities of class and upbringing, and thereby really we should just extend our notion of the education system as something that begins a couple of years before, what do they call it, kindergarten in New South Wales and prep in That's right. Victoria and so on. Um, that really we're just saying school goes for 15 years instead of 13. Hmm. Well, that's a, a slightly different 
conversation. Well, actually, it's a very different conversation. But I wonder if framing it in that way would actually be very different to the way that it's currently being framed, which is about subsidising people's choices to send their children to childcare centres. So I don't actually, I mean, you, you've set up the topic in this way. I, I would like to know what you mean. Like, what, what are we actually talking about in today's conversation? What's the scope of this? Fabulous. Fabulous. Uh, well, look, some of this I'm going to leave to our guest because he's the expert. Mm. I'm not. But I think there are two things that are worth saying in response to your completely uh, justifiable and justified question. Firstly, I think you're right that childcare has attracted a degree of opprobrium in the sense that, okay, ideally parents care for their children full-time right up until the moment that they begin formal schooling. Childcare... Well, even to say that, I think, is controversial. Uh, uh, sorry. Yes, of course it's controversial. But this is part of the opprobrium that I think has, has, been, has attracted to the idea of childcare. So childcare is a kind of ersatz. When you can't have that, then you leave it in the care of a competent other. Uh, yep. But what childcare is fundamentally for are for the basics of nurturing. So the provision of a kind of structured play in a home-like environment, uh, the provision of uh, shelter, of opportunities for rest, for food, for safety, and so on. In other words, it minimizes the idea of childcare because I think of the uh, less than appropriate importance that we assign to the idea of care itself. Childcare has tended to be something like the basics until the real work of education begins. But I think if we give the notion of care its full spectrum of associations, of implications, then I think we have a number of other things that begin attaching to it. So it's not just the stuff of nurturing, but it's also, for instance, the giving of intentional time and attention to children in a manner that is structured and that is highly intentional in the sense of what progresses to what progresses to what. Something that gives an intentional uh, value to what it is that is meant to be gleaned by play but also play with people that are utterly unlike one's own family. And uh, it's about the dilution of certain appropriate attachments to parents and the forming of new and appropriate attachments to other adults. Right, but the, the question of when that should happen sounds to me a scientific-slash-psychological question. Uh, it is, and there is some really interesting research, which, again, I think our, our guest is going to have to speak to. But I think what, what's interesting there, Waleed, is what have I just said that doesn't count as part of the spectrum that's involved in education? If we see, if we see education not simply as the preparation of a would-be worker for the various opportunities in which she or he will face later on in life and therefore the ability to enter the economy as a fully-fledged, fully fully-formed human well, being. That's a horrible way of conceiving of education. Of course it's a horrible way of conceiving of education. If we rather think about education in its fundamentally democratic aspect, which is about, I mean, first of all, the association with others as equals. Secondly, the opportunity, the ability to escape from particular confines of unhelpful, unhealthy domineering. The ability to see and mix with uh, ones who are utterly unlike oneself uh, through which we can then come to see ourselves and others as equals and possibly as one another's teachers. Um, in other words, if we see education as fundamentally part of our formation for democratic citizenship and hence our understanding of ourselves as full equals, as, as bearing a status with which we can stand in front of other people without embarrassment, without taint, without stench, um, if that then becomes part of the larger democratic goal of education, then this is something that begins very, very early in the way that but, children see themselves and understand their place uh, within that wider society. But are you saying that's what happens once you get to school and it should happen earlier? Um, the process of sorting 
that goes on early into those who are given certain opportunities and those who can't, uh, unfortunately begins way, way, way too early with our schooling system. One of the ways of achieving that degree of necessary equality, I think, the beginnings of the escape of the child from the confines of the family into something like democratic society as a whole. That's something that the educational system should probably not just assist, but also proactively, intentionally facilitate from a much earlier age. And practices like reading and play and safe spaces and productive, healthy relationship to other non-domineering adults. These are all so, things yeah, that are bound okay. up with the... But I hear, I hear this ideal. But if that... If schooling doesn't achieve that, why would extending the concept of the education system earlier than schooling achieve it? Can I leave that to the guest? All right. Well, there's a lot for our guest to do, which yes, is probably is. good because it gives us license to, to shut up. I mean, we have left preschool out of this whole conversation as well. We have. Kindergarten, I think, everywhere other than New South Wales, where kindergarten is the first year of school. Why do we have all these... Uh, look... Yeah. I'm getting myself into a tiz. Shall we listen to our guest? Sure. Our guest is Ryan Cox. He's Associate Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney. His most recent research is focused, in fact, on the relationship between social equality and equality of educational opportunity. He's also written a really quite lovely and provocative piece for ABC Religion Ethics. It's a piece he's co-written with Luar Frasioli, one of our great friends on this show, on the ethics and politics of early childhood education, which makes Ryan you pretty much the perfect guest to have on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Uh, great to be with you. Uh, that was an, an amazing setup for what I uh, came in to talk about. So there really are kind of two questions here, right? Should we be thinking of early education and uh, childcare as part of the education system? Uh, and then there's the question, uh, if we do, uh, what follows in terms of how we, how we should be thinking about it? I think that early childhood care has kind of already become de facto system of education. And, and that's motivated by um, research, developmental research, right? We know that a lot of in, important learning in formal education, formal education is going on um, in those years. So early childhood care has already started to adopt that role. But this question about care versus education is a, a really important one to ask, like what, what should we be doing in these years and um, what years should we be doing these things uh, in? I tend to think, oh, well, I agree with Jim Chalmers and the kind of labor line on this, that we should be thinking of it as a kind of, as part of the education system. Um, so I think that immediately raises the question of what follows in terms of mm. justice and fairness. So uh, well, sorry, it raises I, more than that. It raises what follows in terms of obligation. Mm, like that's, a right. that's exactly right. <laughs> it raises example, a lot of questions. Performance yeah. accountability. Uh, there's all kinds of things that are... Exactly. So uh, Luara and I have, we've written a piece that says, well, it, I think it structures this debate quite nicely, right? Um, we think there's a kind of straightforward consistency case for how we do primary education, which suggests that we should be doing early childhood education uh, in the same way. It should be free and compulsory. Um, so I, I think, you know, that provocative claim uh, could structure some of our discussion here. If we're thinking of it in terms of education, then why don't those same kind of considerations that make primary schooling uh, compulsory and free just apply here rather than these kind of halfway proposals about subsidies and, and just uh, early childhood education, More questions accessible. of kind of making. So I wonder if you guys want to come in on the, that general idea of that consistency argument. And then I, I, I might say what I think about well, some what, of the What I would say about what you've just said, Ryan, is that it follows unimpeachably. If you're going to call it education, then you treat it as education. The bit I struggle with is the bit before it, which is to say this should properly be considered education. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying I don't... I haven't got my mind around exactly how precisely we can draw those lines because what you what you said, for example, about a lot of childcare centres do what we consider to be education. Well, that's true, but so do grandparents. So do friends in the... Like, the thing about children, especially very young children, is everything they do is learning. Everything they do is a form of education and often it's done through play. 
like play is probably the primary form of education for children. Are we then to put that in a box called education and try to systematise it or not? And so I guess I'm wondering what, if we are to call something education, what do we mean by, do we talk, are we trying to make some institutionalised claim about it or are we making a merely descriptive claim that this is educational, this is part of what forms a child's education? And that distinction to me is crucial because that is the difference between all the things you say follow, following and not. So, Ryan, before you answer, beautifully asked Wally, but can I just ask when you do answer, Ryan, <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, the open question here is what we mean by education in the first place and what education means specifically within a democratic social order. Or oh, there's, there's a lot of unpackedness now, Scott. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. But, but to my mind, this is, I mean, if we simply mean education as something that has to do with, so early childhood ed education is about giving parents the ability to resume the workforce, hence for economic and personal benefit. And then education has to do with spitting out productive workers at the other side, hence for economic benefit. It seems to me that we haven't understood the particular role that education plays within a, a political order that is constitutively committed to justice as fairness. Yeah, so I think these are, these are great questions. But uh, Waleed, ed yes, education is something that goes on uh, inside and outside of formal schooling, right? And we, we know it's going on now. The developmental studies are showing that children are learning in all these ways and they're being taught in various ways. So education is happening. I'm happy to kind of understand it in a broad, non-institutional sense. Part of the issue is that the quality of the education that children are getting is wildly divergent, right? Some people have parents and grandparents with the resources to spend time encouraging play, reading to their children. Other children don't get that. Um, so this is the place where this kind of democratic role or institutional role comes in. What role does society can society play in ensuring that all children kind of get the same educational opportunities? So I think that's where the formal stuff kind of comes in here. And that's how I see the question. Like, if we start to think of early childhood care as education, then we should think of it as evening the playing ground uh, for this kind of early education that, that the research is just telling us is incredibly important for uh, ongoing education and for further life, life outcomes. But there will be a point of time in a child's life, there'll be an age, a number, something like that, a developmental milestone, whatever, where before which the best form of education or developmental success is time spent with parents or even grandparents, but probably parents. And we can all agree that parents vary wildly in their quality, right? If we're going to say the goal of early childhood education, or even education as such, is equalising, then that necessarily means you're going to be asking people who might have the fortune of having very good, attentive, time-rich parents to forego that advantage, yeah, to I don't opt think that. for something that is lesser, I unless... Don't think you're prepared to tie it to whatever this developmental hinge point is likely to be. Hmm. Uh, now, I don't know what when that is, by the way, and I don't know if we know. Like, I, don't, I don't know if there's sufficient scientific data on it, but that just seems like conceptually that's that would necessarily follow, right? I, I worry a bit. I, I fully understand and I, I, I appreciate the importance of this idea of giving people a decent shot at life by overcoming the disadvantages they might have because of circumstances that are not their fault and beyond their control. I understand that. But one of the things that follows from a narrative that puts equalising first is it says that's primary, like that will have to, other things will have to be compromised for that. And one of those things may well be quality development and education in on the part of those who are who are fortunate to have those resources, parental resources, in a way we would never do in something like sport, for example, right? I'm not saying 
sport is the model we should use elsewhere. Oh, really? But, I thought you've argued yeah. precisely that, Willie. No, not, no, no. Well, no, I don't know. I'm I mean, joking. You, I'm joking. If you I'm wanted joking. to do that, you'd have to say, right, we're setting up a system to produce the elite and we don't care about the rest. Yeah. And I, I don't know that anyone wants to say that about education. But it seems to me these are tensions here. I, I just feel there's something about frictionlessly moving over this idea that the... The, the central organising principle around which other things should be gathered is the idea of equalising. This is an argument, by the way, that attends to every level of schooling. It's an, also an argument yes, about is, yeah. elite schooling versus merely, merely, quote-unquote, public schooling. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, this is it's kind of known as the levelling down objection, that you've got to kind of, you may have to ask people to forego advantage in order to equalise. But, I mean, I... That depends on whether you, you fetishize equalization, whether it really is the first value or just something else you care about. The fact that children are entering primary schooling uh, with wildly divergent abilities to read is a significant uh, issue for equality of opportunity. And no one's saying that we should prevent grandparents or parents who have the ability to read the, to their children from doing it, but that we should be focusing on ensuring that the children that don't have those opportunities get them. It's true that um, you won't be able to completely uh, level the playing field, but we can surely do better as a society. You know, that's the kind but, of response I have to that line. Yeah, yeah. But the reason it becomes a significant question is if you want to walk down the path you've kind of set, once we say this is education, that is, it becomes compulsory and free. The compulsory bit is especially the sticking point there, isn't it? Because yeah. how confident could you be that there will be people that for whom by making this compulsory, you're actually giving them an inferior education to the one they would otherwise receive? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's got, that's got part to do with like what we end up making compulsory, right? So a few hours of schooling a couple of days a week isn't going to prevent uh, those children from getting all the other opportunities that they were getting in the home environment. Right. Um, but it is going to give other children opportunities that they may not have been giving at all. Uh, and we know like at this early stage, you don't need that much, but you need something more than a lot of children are getting. Right. So, so is, yeah, this I, just, is this an elaborate way of then saying, why don't we make preschool two years? Yes, I, I, I do think that most of the considerations that I'm thinking about are about just bringing the, the school age kind of earlier, making preschool happen earlier. Mm. That's right. But what's interesting about that is that takes us in, I think, sorry to keep butting in, Scott, mm, that's great. Say, that takes us in some ways in the opposite direction of the way the childcare discussion is going. Because anyone who's got a kid in kindergarten or preschool, whatever you call it in your location, anyone who's got a kid in that situation knows that's the biggest pain as far as going to work and attending to other aspects of your life is concerned because you're always having to pick them up and drop them off for short windows and it reduces your flexibility hugely. Whereas the childcare thing, what that facilitates and the way indeed in which the argument is being put when it's not being put in educational terms is that it facilitates labour market flexibility and equality, especially for women. So what you're suggesting, it seems to me, Ryan, actually is quite a different thing to the discussion oh, that's being had at the political level. Well, there's level. no suggestion that, sure, as preschool currently has, like the school hours or whatever, like it can still be flexible hours, but the idea is that the, the kind of role uh, would be educational and it would be compulsory. So it, it may involve reforming kind of the care, early childhood care and education system, it can still be flexible. There's nothing about this, this argument that means it couldn't be as flexible as it currently is. All right, Scott, I'm going to let you loose. There's so many wonderful issues here. And I'm, I mean, one of the things I'm immensely grateful for, Waleed, is your clear-eyed, pragmatic focus on things that, I don't know, aren't, aren't inconsequential to me, but are always second order. Um, which says something bad about me, not something bad about you. <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess the thing that I keep coming back to, though, Ryan, is the relationship here between education, family, and democracy. I do feel that at a number of points in the course of our conversation, we've mistaken education for, say, learning, or the kind of formation that takes place within a familial context or through... Uh, engagements with an extended family. Um, it is interesting to note, by the way, that John Rawls had a, a really highly developed, I think, conception of the way that family works 
as, I mean, he doesn't use the term, but he tends to refer to it almost as a kind of incubator, uh, not just of citizens for the prolongation of the continuity of, of just societies, but also the incubator of what he refers to in, the, in one of the final sections of Theory of Justice, the fifth section, as, um, as the necessary moral sentiments uh, that are required to undergird just societies. In other words, you learn about fairness. You learn about uh, the unwillingness to prosper at the expense of other people. You learn about sympathy and empathy. You learn about tenderness and forgiveness within families. And these all become things that sustain, that prolong uh, healthy democratic societies when they reach points of precarity. Uh, or, say, economic fragility. So there's something... He doesn't see family and democracy or family and politics as wholly separate from one another. There's a transition from one to the next. But I think this idea of education as something that helps the transition out of the peculiar dynamics that go on in a family, the peculiar relationships of power, the peculiar... Uh, limitations of parents in terms of what time affords or doesn't, what interests they afford or don't, what habits they wish to instill or don't. There is something really interesting here, I think, about the particular way that education provides that transition point from the peculiarities of what goes on within families with the limitations, the contingencies, the accidents, and the fullness of the status of equal citizenship that one eventually grows into as a vocation through education. And that's why I think one of the things that really I find inebriating, Ryan, about Yuran Luara's argument is that the way that we fund then compulsory and free early childhood education is by one of those other great leveling instruments uh, that tries to take the hard edges off inherited advantage and class inequality, namely an inheritance tax. So I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm just going to give you the floor. These things seem to me to be both politically and ethically tightly connected, the transition from family to democratic society and how it is we try to take the rough edges off the contingencies or the accidents of birth. Um, and it, again, just as my last little thing, I've always loved this line from the first edition of Rawls's Theory of Justice that for some inexplicable reason never made its way into his revised edition, where he says that what a democratic society fundamentally does is it refuses to allow its citizens to become mere subjects of the contingencies of nature. Rather, through democratic education, we commit ourselves to bearing one another's fate. Um, isn't that the underlying ethos of education as such? Yeah, so um, the, the thing you say about Rawls uh, and the family is super interesting, right? Rawls had a very optimistic, uh, and perhaps <laughs> naive true. view of the family. And I mean, it changed. Is, it, it, it changed quite dramatically yeah. over the course of his Yes, he was taken still. to task by many of his former students. Yeah. Uh, Martha uh, Nussbaum was one of them, yeah. Yes, great like feminist scholars who pointed out that uh, the family's not like that. The family is where you learn the patriarchy. And so, Scott, I think you're exactly right that one, one argument for starting education earlier is to start to uh, counteract some of those problematic influences of the family at an earlier age. Now, I, I came in here thinking I'm just going to present some rather low-bar uh, straight down the line arguments for um, compulsory free early childhood. Choose and, the wrong show. <laughs> yes, you've already, you know, the stuff you said about class earlier and now the stuff you're saying about family values, democratic value, the role of education. I mean, you might think, oh, surely if there's a context in which we shouldn't be talking about kind of uh, educating for values, it's early childhood education. But as you're right, like values are subtle things. What you pick up in the family context, what you pick up in an educational context, it's subtle. It's not kind of like educating for democratic values uh, explicitly. There, these are kind of very implicit kind of things you pick up in the family. Um, so I think there's an argument there. I think of those as kind of like high bar ambitious arguments. Uh, I find them attractive. 
And then this thing you say, this connection with inheritance tax that uh, Loire and I went in for, it's kind of a no, no-brainer to connect the two. And people have done it often, right? Um, you just ask yourself, like, what's the source of ongoing inequality of opportunity? Well, it's uh, unequal wealth, right? An inheritance tax is just one way of trying to uh, undo some of those inequalities. And, you know, as you said before, there's kind of, this is kind of like the aesthetics of policy. There's something nice about connecting these two things uh, at both ends, uh, both the, <laughs> the end of life and inheritance taxes and the beginning of life, early childhood education. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, when I reflect on what the connection between the two is, besides the fact that they both have to do with equalizing opportunities, you know, there is also this nice kind of aesthetic to connecting them to, together in that way. But Scott, I think when, the, I, when you, no, sorry, go on. I was just going to say that, I mean, part of, I think, the aesthetics of the connection between inheritance tax and early childhood education, part of that has to be the degree to which that inheritance tax is not just compulsory. It's not just a matter of imposition, although it might start that way, but rather it then becomes what begins as redistribution comes to be experienced, if you like, as a kind of democratic act of gift giving. In other words, there well, might... Like every other tax? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that, well, that's worked. I mean, <laughs> that's exactly how people say tax, Scott. Yes, but, <laughs> but this is also part of... I mean, this is, part of the, this is part of the process of democratic formation. Agreed, but, I, but except it doesn't seem to work. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm attracted to the idea, but how many people in Australia would you say, think of their tax bill as democratic gift giving? And how would, to what extent would an inheritance tax change that perception? I mean, an inheritance tax becomes one's recognition of the extraordinary circumstances uh, from which one has benefited in one's life. And it then becomes an act of recognition that others, through no fault of their own, have been subject to far more dire, far less advantageous conditions. But nothing you've said there couldn't be said of any other tax. Yes. And I, that's not the way people I could say not agree more. And I think that has been one of our tremendous failures, both, sure, of, but an both, of, democratic, tax... both of democratic imagination and of education. But an inheritance tax isn't going to change that. All that's going to do is exacerbate that. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that John Rawls had an entire chapter of theory of justice devoted to the problem of envy and resentment as, yeah, as, as, the, as the twin acids that corrode the foundation of democratic culture. Sure. Okay, now we're talking. <laughs> but the right. idea that you can somehow fix this with an inheritance tax, or that would even nudge us in that direction, I suspect it would just be really explosive. And do you know why I think it would be explosive? There's a whole other show, again, yeah, we could do on inheritance. But I think it would be explosive precisely because inheritance, I think, is becoming one of the last durable forms of meaning making people have in their lives. Interesting. That I might be able to leave it's, something. It's the legacy that I leave. Come up. Yeah. Wow. And that's the bit you want to attack? Wow. I mean, tax my work, tax, what, okay. But that's the bit you're going after? Now, by the way, I, that's not my approach to something like an inheritance tax. But I think in an overarching system where taxation is not seen in the way you've described, hoping that an inheritance tax would somehow cede that view, I, I think it would be, you'd get the exact opposite. Sorry if I'm being too pragmatic, but that's, uh, yeah, I just can't see how that, anyway. Yes, I, I it's rather depressing. Oh, well, it is probably right that uh, that is how we feel. And Scott, I think you're right that uh, we should feel differently, but how do we shift from where we are to there? Um, I mean, perhaps... Uh, we need to be doing more to encourage people that a meaningful legacy would be correcting for the next generation exactly. of injustice. Isn't that a, a more wonderful legacy? And, you know, think about it. It's not like your children uh, or their grandchildren are kind of entitled to inherit your wealth. <laughs> you know, they're just going to be entitled brats uh, if they do. So, well, I mean, what kind of legacy is that? Uh, that's unfair. Kind of to, to just say they're all going to become entitled brats because they inherit 
you know, Although, we're not Waleed, even necessarily talking about Waleed, the vast there's a wonderful, here. there's a wonderful rich vein of of religious teaching that runs through both Judaism and Islam that that suggests precisely that. Well, no, not that they will be. I mean, well, I think Islam and Christianity have different approaches. Wealth and Judaism, I'm not as sure about. But, well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so many inheritance. I mean, mm. one of the things that's really interesting about Islamic inheritance law is that it it mandates a certain diversification in yes, where the money can go, which is why someone actually did this amazing study about Ottoman uh, Empire businesses and yep. found that they rarely lasted more than a few generations yeah, right. because they couldn't be built up through keeping money within the family in a particular way, whereas the Western tradition was the money would go to the eldest, yeah. and so usually eldest male, and so that meant that it could become concentrated in that way. So I'm I'm on board about the idea of diversification. I just think the idea of doing it through taxation for the purposes of correcting inequalities without any guarantee that that's what the taxation would actually do anyway because people are suspicious of the way their tax dollars are spent. I, I just think that would be But it. that's why it's not merely redistributive. It goes strictly into, into early education. Yeah, sure. But we don't have time to flesh this out. You, what I wanted to ask you was about this as a form of values setting. And I think everything would hinge on how that works. Because one way of reading it, and I don't think this is what you mean, but I think it could easily become this, is that we want the state to get involved in the values formation of kids before the family has a chance to. That's right. And I think that, I actually think most, and I don't even think this would be a left-right divide, I think most people would find that idea profoundly repugnant and yes, dangerous. Yes, I agree. I agree. And and for good reason. Yeah. Ryan, we are out of time. You have been incredibly stimulating to have on the... I mean, the topic, I think, is part of it, but someone has actually done some proper thinking about it as opposed to us. Um, <laughs> it's really, really useful. So thank you so much for dropping by. We'll have to do another show on inheritance or something with you later. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Ryan Cox, Associate Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. We'll see you next time. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.